Now, I want to share, my dear brothers and sisters, three significant uprisings that happened during the era of Imam al-Sajjad. And I want to share with you how the Imam reacted to these three revolutions and these three uprisings. And what was the Imam's position? Did the Imam support these uprisings? Did he exclude himself? What was his position regarding the uprisings that took place after he returned to Medina? Sallu ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. The first uprising, so we know that the battle of Karbala took place in 61 AH, 61 after the Hijrah. In the year 63 after the Hijrah, a very important uprising happens in Medina. So this is two years after Karbala. And this uprising is known as Waqa'atul Harra. The Harra uprising. Now Harra is a geographical term. And it refers specifically to the volcanic rock, the lava rock that surrounded Medina. You see, Medina lies north of Mecca. At that time, of course things have changed today with the development of highways and a lot has changed in, in, uh, in Mecca and Medina. During the time of the Prophet and the early Imams, the only way to enter Medina is from the northwest, because the east, the west, and the south was covered in this volcanic rock. It was a natural kind of barrier. So, there was an uprising that took place. Now what's the story behind this uprising? The leader of this uprising was a man by the name of Abdullah ibn Hamvala. I'm going to mention a few terms, few names. Don't get confused because the whole point of this historical discussion is to draw lessons that can help us today. A revolution was started by a man by the name of Abdullah ibn Hamvala. Who's Abdullah ibn Hamvala? He is one of the tabi'een. His father was one of the martyrs in the battle of Uhud. Hamdala ibn Abi Amr, he was 24 years old. He was newly wed. He married Jamila, the daughter of, of uh, Abdullah ibn Ubay. He marries her. They consummate the marriage. The battle of Uhud takes place the following day. The day after he got married, the battle of Uhud took place. He comes to the battle because it was an emergency situation. They had to defend Medina. He comes to the battlefield in a state of janaba. He didn't have enough time to do ghusl. At that time, people didn't have showers like we did today. So he comes to the battle. So this is the father of this man who is revolting in Medina. Hamdala ibn Abi Amr, he, he's martyred in the battle. The Prophet is informed that, you know, he consummated his marriage. He didn't have a chance to do ghusl. Rasulullah says, don't worry. He is Ghasilul Malaika. He didn't have the chance to do ghusl. The angels are doing ghusl for him because he fell as a martyr in Uhud. 
Abdullah ibn Hamzala was the child that was conceived on the eve of Uhud. He grows up, he has a family, he is one of the most prominent figures in Medinan society. He was not Shia, he was a very morally upright person, and he says to himself that Yazid ordered the killing of Hussein. We Muslims, we gave bay'ah to Yazid. Who is this Yazid that we gave bay'ah to? I want to go to Sham and investigate and meet this man who we are calling Amir al-Mu'mineen. So him and his ten sons, they go to Sham and they meet with Yazid. They, they want to see who is the Khalifa now? Who is this person who is now occupying the pulpit of the Prophet? He goes, he meets Yazid, he comes back. And he tells the people of Medina, that, O oh, people of Medina, we have given bay'ah to a fasiq, a corrupt, morally depraved person, someone who drinks wine, someone who fornicates, who commits incest, who plays with dogs and mu- This is someone who's the furthest from faith. This is someone who has no association with Islam. So Abdullah ibn Hanzala, because of his reputation and his prominence in Medina, he organizes a revolt against the Umayyads. And they're trying to depose the governor of Medina. Question, what does Imam al-Sajjad do? Some of us, we think, from a political perspective, the enemy of my enemy is always my friend. Imam al-Sajjad alayhi salam, yes, he has, the, he has a common enemy, but what does he do? He completely excludes himself from this uprising. And in fact, he tells his followers, those who, who would listen to him, that do not join this revolt. In fact, Imam Zain al-Abideen actually left Medina during this revolt. And Imam al-Sajjad sends a letter to Yazid saying that I have nothing to do with this revolution. Now imagine some of us were living in Medina. We would say to the Imam, you know, some of us think that we, we should give the Imam advice. Ya ibn Rasulullah, Yazid, these people are mu'mineen, they're revolting against this zalim. Why are you not supporting them? Where are the hashtags of support? Right? Imam al-Sajjad removes himself. Why? Because Ahlul Bayt teach us that it's not just about who you don't support and who what you don't stand for. It's also about what you do stand for. Just because you oppose the Umayyads, it doesn't mean that you're going to elect someone or appoint someone who's going to be pious and good. They simply might just replace one zalim for another. Now what does Yazid do? Yazid sends an army to Medina, headed by Muslim ibn Uqba. 5,000 soldiers descend upon Medina. The instructions that Yazid gives are the following. 
And it's, it's very disturbing what Yazid says to Muslim ibn Uqba. He says, Give the people of Medina. Again, who's in Medina? You have Sahaba, you have Tabi'een. Imam al-Sajjad has left. He's in the outskirts of Medina. Muslim ibn Uqba is told by Yazid, invite them to surrender. Give them three days. If they insist on their rebellion, فَإِنْهُمْ أَجَابُوكَ وَإِلَّا فَقَاتِلُمْ Fight against them if they refuse to surrender. فَإِذَا أُظْهِرْتَ عَلَيْهِمْ فَأَبِحَّا ثَلَاثًا Fight them, and if you are victorious, Yazid says, I make Medina halal for you. Meaning what? فَمَا فِيهَا مِنْ مَالٍ Whatever wealth you find, take it, it's yours. Whatever women you find, take them as your concubines. Whatever weapons you find, take it and confiscate it. Whatever food you find in the houses, eat it, enjoy. You have a free-for-all in Medina for three days. Yazid, he sends a letter to Muslim ibn Uqba. He says, فَإِنَّهُ About Imam al-Sajjad. He says, fight everybody but leave Ali ibn al-Husayn alone. Do not attack Ali ibn al-Husayn. He says, فَإِنَّهُ لَمْ يَدْخُلْ فِي شَيْءٍ مِمَّا دَخَلُوا فِيهِ Because Ali ibn al-Husayn has nothing to do with this revolution. وَقَدْ أَتَانِي كِتَابُهُ We don't have the letter that Imam al-Sajjad wrote. But Yazid, he says that Imam al-Sajjad, Ali ibn al-Husayn has nothing to do with this rebellion. Leave him alone. I received his letter. Now, Ibn Kathir, he writes, إِنَّهُ حَبَلَتْ أَلْفٌ مْرَأَةٍ فِي تِلْكَ الْأَيَّامِ مِنْ غَيْرِ زَوْجٍ There was blood flowing in the streets of Medina. The army of Muslim ibn Uqba, they stationed their horses in the masjid of Rasulullah. The mosque of the Prophet became a stable for the horses. Ibn Kathir says, a thousand virgins were impregnated by this army. You have a thousand newborns who were born out of rape. Now, in this atmosphere, you may say, why didn't Imam al-Sajjad rise up? Why didn't he do anything? Because the Imam salam knows that we don't have the manpower to resist. If we fight, what's going to happen? I will be killed, all of my followers will be killed, and there will be no trace of Islam left. This is very similar, by the way, to what happened in Iraq. There were many Shias for many years criticizing Sayyid al-Sistani. Why doesn't he come out and say anything? Criticizing Sayyid al-Khu'i. Why doesn't he come out and say anything? Many of them were following the example of Imam al-Sajjad. Keeping their heads low. Working quietly for the sake of preservation. I promise you brothers and sisters that sometimes our ulama they're silent, not because they're afraid. They're silent because they care about the blood of the Shia. They don't want this blood to be spilled in vain. 
This is what Imam al-Sajjad was trying to teach the people. That I don't have a problem with revolting, but our blood, if it's going to be shed, it should be for a good cause. It should matter. We shouldn't just give our blood freely. We have to be strategic. We have to plan. We can't be reckless. If Sayyid al-Khu'i came out and challenged Saddam, you know what would have happened? Millions of Shias would have been wiped out. In fact, it's very possible that the Hawza of Najaf would have been completely destroyed. Sometimes, the most courageous thing to do is to do what people expect you not to do. It takes courage to say, I'm going to stay silent even though I know people are going to call me a coward. But it's actually a sign of strength. That I am going to preserve the blood of the followers of Ahlul Bayt. I'm going to preserve this madhab. We're going to weather the storm and we're going to build quietly. We're going to keep our heads down. And that's how Imam al-Sajjad went from three to five followers after Karbala to 173 scholars of the highest eminence at the time of his death. This was the first uprising. Waqatul Harra. Imam al-Sajjad excluded this, this, this was just an anti-Umayyad movement. It was not a Shi'i uprising. The second uprising that took place, Thawratul Tawabin, in the year 65 after the Hijrah. You know, the 18,000 letters that Imam al-Husayn received in Kufa, these individuals were still there. Many of them were still in Kufa. Sulaiman ibn Surad was among the leaders of Kufa. He was Shia, maybe politically Shia, perhaps maybe theologically to an extent. Many of the Shias in Kufa, they felt guilty for not trying harder to help Imam al-Hussein. Many of them felt that we failed our Imam. Habib ibn Mudahar al-Asadi, he was with us, but he, he got himself to Karbala. He made it. He found a way to get to Imam al-Hussein. But we failed our Imam. And they felt that it's not enough for us to just do tawbah with our tongues. We need to demonstrate our remorse we need to demonstrate our repentance by sacrificing our blood, by fighting against the Umayyads with the intention of what? Overthrowing the Umayyads and handing over Khilafah to Ahlul Bayt Again, when you look at the historical accounts, there is no sign that Imam al-Sajjad supported this movement. The Imam salam. There's no connection between him and Thawratul Tawabin. He distanced himself. And what you find is, my dear brothers and sisters, is that, again, this is more of a Shia movement. But the problem is, the movement is too late. Sometimes opportunities present themselves to you, and you delay. These people are willing to die. But you should have been willing to die four years ago. You waited. You know, when we speak about the striking of Ali on the day of Khandaq, you know why that strike was so valuable? 
because of the timing. It's important to do good, but it's even more important to, to, to do good at the right time. For example, today, what we see in the world, in our communities, the proliferation of LGBTQ ideology and gender ideology. It's good that we're pushing back as a community. But I think we're late. I think we're 20 years late. It would have been more affected if we inoculated our community 20 years ago with these conversations. But we waited too long. And now we're having to do damage control. We're reactive. Thawrat al-Tawabin is a story about men who are good, who are decent, hearted, but they did not act when the time required them to act. They delayed. That ship has sailed. Imam al-Sajjad said, this is not the time. Your revolution is not going to go anywhere. You're going to die and nothing's going to come out of it. And then you have the uprising of Mukhtar ibn Ubaidillah al-Thaqafi. Sallu ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. Mukhtar ibn Ubaidillah al-Thaqafi is a unique individual. Of course, when you look at Mukhtar, we have to be honest and say that we have narrations that praise Mukhtar ibn Ubaidillah al-Thaqafi and we also have narrations that condemn him. So you have ikhtilaf among our scholars regarding Mukhtar. There are some scholars that say that some scholars like Alam al-Majlisi, he has reservations about Mukhtar. Some of our ulama, they say that yes, he deserves credit for avenging and seeking revenge against the killers of Imam al-Husayn alayhi salam, but he engaged in some un-Islamic practices like mutilating bodies. Some ulama say that this was something that was disapproved and unacceptable. You have other scholars like Sayyid al-Khu'i. Sayyid al-Khu'i says, we recognize Mukhtar ibn Ubaidullah al-Thaqafi as a great personality and all of the ahadith that condemn him have weak chains of transmission. In any case, what you find is that in the 66th year after the hijrah, again, Look at how careful Imam al-Sajjad is. Imam al-Sajjad is very careful not to make direct contact with Mukhtar. Why? Because if Mukhtar and Imam al-Sajjad are seen together, if they come together, there will be a target on both of their backs. It's not a matter of courage. It's a matter of doing what is in the best interest of the movement. You might have two scholars who respect each other, but maybe they never want to be seen with each other because of certain considerations. Some of us are very superficial. We think that this scholar has beef with that scholar because they never, they're never, we never see them together. They don't, maybe they're aligned, but they understand that there are negative implications if they outwardly show support to one another. Imam al-Sajjad, he distanced himself from Mukhtar. Not because he was necessarily against Mukhtar, but because he understood that for the safety of Mukhtar and for the safety of the Imam himself, there needs to be some distance. Imam 
Zainul Abidin, what does he do? Again, look at the strategy, look at the planning of Ahlul Bayt. Some scholars say that Imam al-Sajjad was directing and giving instructions to Mukhtar through Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyya. Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyya was meeting with Mukhtar. And Imam Zainul Abidin was using him as a proxy. And what's amazing is the Umayyads were never able to draw a line from Imam Zainul Abidin to Mukhtar. Because the Imam was smart. He was wise. Covered his tracks. Working underground. Working quietly. I'll tell you this, my dear brothers and sisters. You don't always need to be in the limelight to be a game changer. This is very important. You don't need to be in the limelight to be a game changer. And that's why Islam, for example, places great importance on the role of a mother, on the role of our women. Islam teaches that our women, our mothers, our wives, our sisters, they can do so much. They are the ones who shape human society and they don't even need to be out in public when they do it. You can be a game changer behind the scenes. And this is what we see with Imam al-Sajjad. Working quietly, laying low, keeping your head down, thinking about the future. You might not see the fruits of your labor today, but that should not discourage you. Imam Zainul Abidin, he was doing things in his life to benefit the Shias for generations to come.